So we'll be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, and it's page 882 in your church Bibles. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. Nice to see you all. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, to be able to hear you, the God who made all things speak, to have just heard your word span across centuries, and to know that you are a speaking God. Lord, how can we know you? And how can we know how to respond to you? Well, because you tell us. And so, Heavenly Father, we come this evening in all the things that we're doing and we want to engage with you and know you and respond in the ways that you would have us respond rightly as we seek to worship you and bring honour and glory to your name. So, Lord, I pray I do that as I seek to explain this passage, and as we come to think about what the implications might be for us, individually and corporately as a church. We pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would be at work. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us in recent weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been listening to Jesus on the eve of his death. He's met with his disciples, he's been in the upper room, and for several chapters in John's Gospel, he talks with them, and then prays with them, and then for the last three weeks, we've been listening in to the prayers immediately that come before Jesus will move towards Jerusalem, where he dies. And so then think about that, that after that, his disciples are left alone, and surely you'd be thinking, well, where to from here? Of course, Jesus has actually told them what they're meant to do immediately and where to from there. In fact, he's given them extensive instructions that they are to wait because he is going to be coming back to them. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus dies and is resurrected alive and comes back and spends spends time with his gathered disciples. So when the book of Acts begins, it picks up that story and gives some detail, only a small amount, about those days when he is back with them. So in the passage that we just had read, it describes some of that. But earlier on in verse 3 of that same chapter, it says this, that after his sufferings, Christ's sufferings, he presented himself to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. 
Now, just imagine that. You would never want those 40 days to end. They've seen Jesus die and be placed in a tomb. They've wondered whether all the things that he's said are actually going to come to pass. And now he's alive. And for 40 days, he meets with them. And you'd be thinking, they'd be constantly saying, we saw you die. Prove it again that you're alive. And I don't know what he did to prove it. We know he ate some fish. We know he, he dined with them. But all of the things over 40 days, show us again, you're alive. I just can't believe it. That you are, That is a very convincing proof that you're alive. And tell us more. Teach us more. Tell us more about the kingdom of God. Because before we were listening, but now we're really listening. Because we are so hungry to hear, is there anything more incredible and more powerful than someone that's gone from living to dying to rising again? And if you've got that kind of power, that's a kind of kingdom that I want to lend an ear to. Will you teach us more about your reign and your rule? And then into that same scene in verse 4 that follows, the same disciples are given another command about where to from here. And Jesus says to them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for what? Well, wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, that taps into some of the things that Jesus has been teaching his disciples as he's been saying goodbye to them. They have heard extensively about the fact that Jesus is going to go to the Father and when he goes, he will send to his disciples the Holy Spirit. Not just the 12, but all who trust in Jesus will be sent another counsellor like him. God will now dwell among his people. They will not be left as orphans and alone. And in fact, greater than that, they will be empowered for service. Now, immediately, the disciples have got a question as they hear that. In verse 6, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it seems like a fair enough question. Jesus has, after all, been teaching them about the, the kingdom of God. And now the question that's on their mind is, well, what does that mean for Israel? Is this the end to Rome? And now will Israel be the place where God dwells and dominates? Is that what is going to happen? But from Jesus' reply, it's clear that they are too limited when they think about the kingdom of God just being restricted to one national identity, just to Israel. They're asking the wrong question. In fact, Jesus wants them to know where and how the kingdom of God is going to advance and what function the Holy Spirit in them is going to achieve. And it's bigger than a kingdom that would be established just in the kingdom of Israel. Verses 7 and 8, he says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the date that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. If you want to know about the kingdom of God, you need to realise this. The Spirit will be poured out and you will be empowered to witness. Oh yes, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they are given at that point in time clear marching orders from their commander. In fact, they're exactly the same marching orders that Jesus has said to his disciples in Matthew 28 prior to his death. Sorry, in Matthew 28, in verse 18, where he speaks out the Great Commission. And in the midst of that Great Commission, he says to his disciples, given the authority that I have, 
and has been given to me, I tell you to go. And as you go, make disciples of all nations. So, what happens next for the disciples? Well, this is what happens next. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They looked intently up into the sky as he was going. Now imagine you're there and imagine that scene in that moment. How long is that moment? Well, that's a moment you never want to end, is it? They're standing there looking intently. How long? Well, it's not the kind of thing that you just kind of shrug your shoulders and kind of say, well, you know, you made it through customs and off he goes back to the car, we'll head home, whatever. It's not like that because this is the resurrected Jesus. He has just ascended skyward, now obscured by a cloud, and well, you're going to watch that happen. You're not about to walk off. You're waiting and you're hoping for the cloud to clear, trying to make out if you can still see him or not. See, this is more impressive and more important than a helium balloon that some kid has lost. But whenever some kid lets go of the helium balloon, I stand there for ages trying to see how long it stays in the sky, watching it for ages. So how long are you standing there, watching and waiting and seeing the ascended Lord Jesus rise and disappear into the cloud? Well, we don't know how long they're looking there. But what else would you do next in that scene? And it's into this scene that what can only be understood to be two messengers from God appear to his disciples and they speak up. And they ask the disciples the next question. It comes in verse 10 of Acts chapter 1. When suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? And we immediately think, Well, why wouldn't they? We would. You would too, wouldn't you? Except for the fact that they've already been given all of the instructions that they need to know about what they're meant to be doing next. And the angelic messengers bring God's word to them. And they give them the kick that jogs their memory. It's, it's about to provide momentum. They go on to say, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. See, well, what's that all about? Seems fair enough, they're standing there watching, but they seem to be criticised for standing there and, and, and looking skyward. Why do you stand here? Because the, because the angels want to say to them, remember, remember what was the plan? He's gone to the Father. He's sending the Spirit. He's empowering you. And you will receive. And you are to go. Remember, you are going to be his witnesses. And this same Jesus will come back. So, why are you standing here? Or have you forgotten? Are you distracted? Have you forgotten who he is and, and who you are and, and what the commander left as the mission for you to be engaged in? Why do you stand here? Of course, that's quite a familiar scene in a way when you think about other stories in the Bible. Take your mind back to the morning where the women come to the tomb. Luke 24 catches this. 
early on that first Easter Sunday morning, the women come and the body is gone and they are bewildered. They are grief struck. And that scene actually is so similar to the one we see here in Acts chapter 1. Two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning ask the women the, the next question. And they say to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, rise again? And then they remembered his words. It's like when Jesus meets his disciples by the Sea of Galilee in John's Gospel in chapter 21. Jesus has been crucified, he's in the tomb. And what do the disciples do? Well, some of them have gone back to fishing. They've gone back to what they know best. And yet we discover it's been a fruitless endeavour all night long. They haven't caught a thing. And the resurrected Jesus meets his disciples and from the shore of Galilee, he calls out to them. Those that he had instructed were going to be fishers of men. He asks them the next question. And in verse 5 of John chapter 21, he says, friends, have you caught any fish? Which is really Jesus asking, why are you back fishing again? Why? And it's incredibly loving, actually, to be woken up by God's word, by messengers from God, by Jesus himself, to whether disciples have forgotten what they're meant to be doing, what they're meant to be engaged in, the thing that is next. See, how loving and how wonderful to be reminded. Because people easily forget, don't they? To be woken up from distraction because disciples get sidetracked. To be prompted to carry on in the journey because even the faithful get fatigued. So stop for a moment and ask yourself that same question. Take time tonight now and see this as an opportunity to be reminded of what Jesus has empowered you to be involved in. Those of you who know Jesus Christ, he says, you will receive my spirit and you are to be my witnesses. To be reminded of his mission for you and for me, that from the time when he left his first disciples until he returns again, that we are called to be his witnesses, making disciples of all nations. Is that what you're doing? Are you part of that endeavour? Do you need to be asked, why are you standing here? Wherever it is that you're standing and doing whatever it is that you're doing, is it, is it in step with the mission that I have called you to do next? For a moment, sit with that question that Jesus asks us to think about. What's next in this life that he has given you, personally? And now let me transition in our thinking, because it's also important to ask that question collectively, 
what Jesus has called his church, his gathered people to be about. Why are you standing here? Do you remember what I told you to do next? And is that what you're doing? And I want to say that that mission is what Narrabeen Baptist Church is on about. Indeed, has always been on about. A clear desire to stay on that mission, that we would be God's people meeting in this place, existing for the glory of God, and exhibiting that by loving his son, that we are all about Jesus, knowing and worshipping him. That because of that, we are a word-based, spirit-led, gospel-centred church. That's reliant on prayer. That we want to be about loving our neighbours. We want to be about reaching the lost. We want to be a church that makes disciples who make disciples. We want to be the church, the beloved bride, bearing witness to the incredible beauty of Jesus to the people on the northern beaches of Sydney and beyond. And when I say all of that, I'd hope that there's really nothing new in any of that. Over the years, we've summarised it a number of ways, and I've been connected up with this church, closing in on three decades. And over the years, as we've thought about it, it sounded different from time to time. As a church, we've seen ourselves as being a community that's about knowing Christ and making him known. There was a time when we talked about being an authentic church, attracting and impacting our community and world for Christ. For a season, we summarised it by saying we want to present Christ to everyone, evangelism. And we want to present everyone mature in Christ, discipleship and edification. More recently, it's this familiar phrase, that we want to be God's family on mission, making disciples of Jesus. That the mission never changes. That the marching orders from the commander stay the same. Oh, our method should always serve the mission. But the message, the mission stays the same. Now that conviction has prompted a lot of thought over the last few years. As a leadership, we've been asking the question, what does it look like now to be God's family on mission, making disciples of Jesus on the northern beaches of Sydney? Which is to ask, where to from here? Thinking about paving the way forward. And as we've come to think about that question, it's drawn us back to a series of core convictions that underpin how we do the corporate gathering, how we do church. To be clear, what I'm about to talk about for a moment is how we do think about things collectively. I'm not talking about all of the convictions that underpin the Christian life, but specifically those that relate to how we meet together and congregate so as to fulfil Christ's mission for his church. And in talking about that, we identified four key commitments. And I just want to summarise them briefly now, and we're going to be thinking about these more in weeks to come. But the first is to say this, that the gathering is to be word-centred. And we begin with this foundational commitment that it's God's word that creates the church and sustains it. And so we want to be obedient to that word. History shows 
And I think the Bible tells us clearly that the church flourishes when it regularly hears, preaches, sings, prays, and sees the word when it's gathered together to worship. And week by week, that is central to who we are here. So a key question that we've kept on asking is, is the church hearing and responding to and discussing and implementing and being transformed by Scripture? Because, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message. Belief and trust, faith, comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And we want faith to come to people. To a world that's lost, we want faith to come and we want it to grow in people. And therefore, we want the word to always be central. Not only is the gathering word centered, the gathering is edifying. Edifying has this idea, is the idea of edification or building up. Constructive of faith and not destructive of faith. It includes the idea of growing toward maturity. So in Colossians chapter 1, Paul sets the example. And in verse 28, he says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. And so as we're thinking about how we gather and why we gather, a question that we keep asking ourselves is, does this build one another up? And how? Because Paul reminds the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, everything must be done so that the church might be built up, word-based, edifying. The gathering is also participatory. It's a great word. It took us a long time to come up with this one. I spelt it right tonight as well, which is even better. (laughs) But what this is trying to catch is a big idea, and that is to understand that you are the church, every one of you. All of God's family designed to gather and to grow and to participate. And that that participation reaches across any division. It's meant to. That's the power of the gospel and Christ in us. Across race, age, affluence, gender, education, marital status, social standing or capacity, whatever. The church is meant to be made up of everyone whose unity is not found in our sameness. But unified under one head who is Christ, despite our diversity. And mobilising our diversity and all of the resources that come with that. Now, one implication of this is our commitment to be a church that is intergenerational. That's saying more than that we want to be a church that's multi-generational. A church with different ages all represented that keep to themselves. Intergenerational will mean having relationships that span across the ages. Where younger and older receive the mutual benefits of being part of the body of Christ together. Now, we realise that this commitment makes things deliberately difficult. It is easier to target a single demographic. But we don't want the imbalance of a church of youth and young adults and a church of early retirees and a church of young families. And a Much better, much harder and biblical and more dependent on God necessary to be God's family on this mission together. And so we're asking the question, are we intentionally making disciples of everyone as we do this gathered thing together? Because the Psalms sing out to us, 
from centuries ago in 145 and say, do you not remember that one generation commends your works to another? They tell of your mighty acts. Well, the fourth thing, the gathering is also purposeful. This is to be reminded that the church serves a number of purposes, one of which is that we gather together in order to scatter, that we meet collectively to worship and to care and love one another, to grow as disciples, to equip and to serve and to go, to return and to engage in our communities, in our world, in our families, in our schools and educational institutions and on. We're not a fortress keeping the world out, but a a light, a city on a hill in the world, just not of it. To be a gathering that is purposeful is to acknowledge that we need to be then culturally aware and responsive to the changes in our culture around us. This is about having our finger on the pulse and all the while having our hand gripped by Jesus and his word. It calls for engagement and resilience. And the key question we want to keep asking is, how do we remain true to the gospel and engage with the culture that is changing all around us? Paul wrestles with that same idea and to the church in Corinth, he says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, these core commitments we think need to be further explored and they have greater implications than I'm hinting at tonight. And so over the next month, we have a preaching series that's going to work through each of these week by week. In the first week, Travis, starting from next week, Travis and Kieran will be having us thinking about the gathering as word-centred. The following week, myself and Daniel will think about the idea of the, the gathering that is building up and edifying. On the 18th of August, Travis and Kieran will be thinking about the gathering as participatory And then I'll finish the series on the 25th of August, thinking about that the gathering is purposeful. We want to explore these commitments that shape us as a gathering and what it looks like to us to be following Jesus. The book of Acts will serve as a backdrop showing us how the early church in the first century wrestled with the same questions that face us. That question that's asking, what does it mean for us to be the people of God now? What's next? Now, we have been thinking about this as a leadership for some years and explicitly for some months. And we believe that God is prompting us to explore how we do church as a gathering. And we believe that that means making some changes that will better serve the mission that Jesus has given us and better reflect our core commitments. We've also heard from multiple members in the church that have asked that we might re-evaluate the church services in their timing, their structure and their intention. Most of these requests have come in relation to 11am and 6pm church, but they reflect a church-wide concern where you've been asking, is this working? And what can be done? These questions and requests have come from a broad spectrum of people and they reflect a desire to see vitality and engagement increase. People have been also asking for better opportunities to build relationships and to connect. And I want to say that they are right and healthy questions that you are asking. They're also really complex to answer. And sometimes they're hard to hear. I also want to say that as a pastoral team, we've been concerned that our current practice, where we have shared responsibilities across the church gatherings, 
and the replication of church services each week is not helpful. It lacks clarity and engagement. So we believe that we need to do several things. We need to develop gatherings that are communities with distinctive identities, that have identifiable leadership, that keep NBC as one church. We believe that we need to implement strategies that genuinely pursue a commitment of being an intergenerational church. We've been investigating and thinking hard about the oversight, the timing, the place and the duration of our gatherings, recognising the implications that these have on each age and stage of life, how we can better provide care, how it impacts the church's leadership resources, with a particular concern for children's ministry and music ministry leaders. Also the implication on service content and sermon length, on opportunities for hospitality, on the site itself and parking limitations and on and on. Now to say all of those things I think is pretty abstract. But as a leadership, I'd like to introduce you to things that are a little bit more concrete. We would like to introduce to you tonight a number of changes or a suite of reforms, if that sounds better, (laughs) that will impact every single person who comes to NBC in a number of ways. We believe that these changes should be implemented over the course of the next few months, some sooner than late others. As we do this, we want to invite you to prayerfully evaluate what we are proposing and to feed into this process so that collectively we can, where necessary, refine our thinking. So what are we proposing? We are proposing that we would have two church services on this site on a Sunday and change each of the times that we meet so that we are able to run effective children's ministry, both AM and PM. That we're more accessible to young families and young adults and young workers who are finding the PM service finishing too late with increasingly early Monday start times. We also want to avoid crossing over meal times, lunch and dinner, where we've come to appreciate the negative effect that this has, especially on young families and seniors in retirement homes. We want to allow for adequate time for musicians to prepare, and we want to free up more time to do hospitality better, AM and PM. For these and other reasons, we are proposing that we move to have one AM service at 9.30am and one PM service at 5pm. We are determined that each service is intergenerational. Now, one of the implications of this is that we'll be running a full children's ministry program at both 9.30 and 5pm. Toasties for high school students will also feature both AM and PM. We are proposing also that each church service has clear and identifiable leadership. Thus, appointing service pastors who will be responsible for the leadership and coordination of each gathering. Travis for the 9.30am and Kieran for the 5pm. As senior pastor, I'll be freed up to lead the church as a whole, overseeing both congregations and preaching regularly at both am and pm services. 
and I'll continue to be remain, remain available to the entire church. Kieran's current role as children and families pastor will not change and Travis's current role of community group oversight and integration will continue. We're also proposing that each church community will have elders associated with them so that the sheep know their shepherds and vice versa. Here's the thing. We started a key project in the leadership team 18 months ago to explore how we might address issues of declining engagement and numbers at the 11am church. All the answers that we identified equally applied to all the other services. But the thing that we couldn't get past were the difficulties that arise when you run services back to back. Some, have the, some of these have to do with replication and logistics like parking, but the biggest strain has been most keenly felt by those leading the children's ministry that has fluctuated, had fluctuating numbers for a long time and the 11am musicians who have week by week been rushed and stressed to produce consistently an excellent worship experience. Now I understand the sadness and the loss that comes with the consolidation of church services and the changing of times. I also know the fears that wake up with any change. I'm especially mindful of the impact on those of us who regularly worship at 11am. And I'm sorry that they will bear the heaviest loss. We understand the gravity of what is being proposed and we're not making any of the changes to hurt anyone. These are significant decisions, none of them taken lightly, and it's why we're inviting you to respond to them. And I also want you to know that we are excited by them, excited to pursue these next reforms for our church. We're working towards the changes to the service times to take effect from the first Sunday in September. How might you respond? Well, we want to ask you to respond in this way. Please pray. We're proposing some significant changes in the life of our church family. And we recognise that everyone will be impacted by these changes. So please commit these ideas to prayer. We earnestly want to be in step where God is leading his flock as we ask where to next. And we seriously don't want to give the enemy a foothold, not through disunity or disobedience. So please commit to pray. We also would ask that you would talk. We recognise that this will come as a surprise to some of you and others it will seem long overdue. Some of us will be excited by the idea of change, others of us find it unsettling. And we want to care for you the best way that we can. So please make sure that you are raising your thoughts and concerns with those who are leading the church and proposing these reforms. The pastoral team is available after the service tonight and we are always just a phone call away. Please have the conversations with us. We really want to listen and talk through these things, especially the concerns that you might have. We've also set up an email, and if you would like to make contact that way, you can send your thoughts to next at narrowbeanbaptist.org.au. The last thing I want to say about how you might think about responding is to invite you to trust. Through all of this, please pray, talk, email, do what you wish in all of those things, but please trust. As a leadership, we have prayed hard and we have thought hard. And we believe that these reforms are good and healthy and what is next for NBC. And we want you to join us in this journey 
And so with all of those thoughts in mind, I'm going to pray. And as we do that, I'm going to draw us back to where we began. So would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, your disciples stood and they were prompted to think about where they were standing and what they would do next. And with the outpouring of your spirit that comes, the transformation in their lives is remarkable. The power of the gospel, the proclamation of it, the expansion of your church that we see through the book of Acts. And we ask, Lord, that you might be guiding us that those first disciples became acutely aware aware of where you were leading them. And Lord, now we want to ask this question personally. Lord, where are you leading me? Am I on mission? Engaged in the things you want me to be engaged in, living the life for the purpose that you have declared? Lord, where are you leading me? And Lord, where are you leading us? Where are you leading this church? And in as much as we are in step with your spirit and on mission, Lord, would you confirm it? And where we have strayed, Lord, redirect it. Where we are fatigued, invigorate and wake us up that we might be your family on mission making disciples of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you might look upon your bride, your church that meets here in Narrabeen at this time and continue to protect it and love it, guide it and sustain it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.